the Apostle Paul writes, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is God's Word. Let's pray one more time. Lord, we need your help. We want to see more of Christ and more of your glory, so please help us. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen. There at the end of verse 17, we see these words. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And we noted last Lord's Day that there is such a thing from this verse and the the following verse, there is such a thing as the power of the cross. There is an efficacy or uh, efficient operative force in or behind the cross of Jesus Christ. We see that in this verse. We also noted that Paul does have in mind primarily here the preaching of the cross. And we're going to get back to what he's talking about here next Lord's Day. That's going to, we're, we're leading back up to that. But what we've done is sort of zoomed out a bit and we're considering this matter of the, the power of the cross a little more broadly by simply asking, what is the power of the cross? What is the power of the cross? What or how are we to understand this notion of the power of the cross which Paul clearly assumes here? What is it? Now when we read through these the the next verses, 18 through 25 at least, and on down through the end of the chapter, we see the actor in these verses is God. It's about preaching. And Paul does mention his preaching, but the actor, the one that that brings the power of the gospel, the actor is God. God is doing things through the gospel. God is saving sinners. God is overthrowing the wisdom of men. God has effectively made foolish the wisdom of the world through the cross. That's what Paul's saying here. So we would say the power of the cross or the power behind the cross and we'll see the power behind the preaching of the cross most simply is God. God is the power behind the cross. But more specifically, the power of the cross is God magnifying His wisdom through the death of Jesus Christ. The power of the cross is God magnifying His wisdom through the death of Jesus Christ. There are other things that God is doing in and through the cross, certainly. But preeminently, and I would maybe even suggest as the the fountain of everything else that God is doing in the cross of Christ, is this activity of God magnifying Himself and specifically magnifying His infinite wisdom in the cross. And this principle of God's dealing in the cross 
God manifesting His wisdom in a way we would never have imagined. That principle we saw last week has governed everything that God has done, all of God's works. He he follows along this same principle that we could call the principle of the cross or the power of the cross. God doing things to redeem sinners in ways that man could never have imagined. In most cases, the complete opposite of the way that we would do it. We would cherish our firstborn son, Esau, God says, Jacob. We would cherish our firstborn son, Reuben. God says, Judah. God does it in ways that we would never have imagined and even often contrary to that. Why? Because God wants to show His wisdom. That His wisdom triumphs over all of the wisdom of man. And We we call that period of time the time approaching the cross. We just looked at a, a few examples. Well, this morning I want to move to the second period of time where this principle of power is seen, a very short period of time called the time attending the cross. The time attending the cross. To to state it, I guess, in the form of a a thesis statement or an axiomatic statement, as the Lord Jesus was on the cross, the infinite wisdom of God was was in its chiefest and most glorious display. This was the moment when wisdom was seen most magnificently and most clearly as Christ hangs on the cross. Never was God's wisdom so clearly portrayed before all creation, things seen and unseen, than it was when Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross, when Christ was crucified. It's on the cross alone where all of God's infinite perfections, which we've been studying the attributes of God in the evening, and we study them piece by piece. To us, all of God's infinite perfections come like refracted the refracted Refracted light of a rainbow. A bunch of different colors all coming from the same sun. But to us, we see many different colors. All of God's perfections to us, we, we study them as if they were different things. Except we know that in God, they are all just simply God. And it's on the cross, as Jesus Christ hangs on the cross, that all of those colors come together in one laser beam of blinding, glorious light, which is God Himself, His own glory. On the cross, the holiness, righteousness, and justice of God come sweetly together in one with His love, and His mercy, and His grace. On the cross... His almighty arm of vengeance and fury comes hammering down. And at the same time, His tender hand of pity and compassion comes to comfort and carry sinners. And we would ask, how can that be? We couldn't come up with this. We couldn't have never imagined this. How can it be? To borrow the title of a... a, well-known work by a man named William Bates. Who could have ever dreamed of such a harmony of the divine attributes in the contrivance of man's redemption? Who could have ever fathomed it? The only answer is infinite 
eternal wisdom devised this plan. Only God. So, let's go to Calvary. Let me read to you a few statements from the Gospels just to situate in your mind where we're going to stand for the next few minutes. This is from John and Matthew and Luke. I'm just going to read them together without reference. They took Jesus and went out, or He went out bearing His own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. When they had crucified Him, they divided His garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over Him there. And over His head they, were, they put the charge against Him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with Him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided Him, wagging their heads... It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. Black. Darkness. Three hours. Middle of the day. It's dark. Then Jesus, well it says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Then Jesus called out with a loud voice, saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now imagine that we are standing there. We're standing there. We're, we're not far from Mary and John. Mary's weeping, probably profusely and uncontrollably. John tries to remain resolute. And yet he himself is clearly distraught at what has just happened. His Lord has died. We're standing not far from them. We've just watched Jesus of Nazareth die. Here's the question. What was God doing? We're seeing things happen. People are walking by. There's probably crowds coming in and out. It's a busy place. But what was God doing? Or we could ask, as, as we have just watched this man die, what did God just accomplish? What happened? We wouldn't have been able to see it with our physical eyes. But we could say that we would have just beheld the triumph of infinite wisdom in the salvation of sinners. We just watched it happen in this event. That's what I want you to see this morning. I want you to see the wisdom of the cross of Christ or what we could call the power of the cross in manifesting the wisdom of God. Now, I want to say from the outset that this, this is going to be like I just invited all of us to stand on the beach at the ocean, and I pointed at the ocean and said, can't you see how wide it is and how long it is and how deep it is? And can't you see the many millions of creatures in the sea and shipwrecks and plane wrecks? And, and, and you would say, I can't even see very far at all. I don't, I don't see any of that. I, I recognize that it's probably there, but no, I can't see it. That's, that's what this is going to be like. Because we have only the slightest surface level conception 
of the wisdom of God in the cross of Christ. We barely stick our toes in the water and we respond, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways. Now we often use the phrase, to summarize the substance of the gospel, we often use the phrase, the person and work of Christ. And we use it in that order because it is the person first who makes the work infinitely valuable and salvific to us and to God. And so I want to use that order, the person and the work of Christ, but we're thinking specifically about the power of the cross or the cross of Christ. And so the, we have only two headings. The first one will be the Christ of the cross. Who is this person? And then secondly, the cross of Christ. And we'll consider the work. And I, I, just, I just want you to see the wisdom. Think about the wisdom of God in this. So number one... The Christ of the cross. We've just watched a man die. The question is, who is this man that we're looking at on the cross? The inscription above his head, we can read it. If we can read uh, Greek or Latin or Aramaic, we could read the inscription. It says, this is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews... We could read that. The people that are standing by and walking by, we, we can hear them ascribing titles to Him, but we know that it's, it's clearly mocking that they say these things. He's the King of Israel. He said, I'm the Son of God. Let Him save Himself is the, if He is the Christ of God, His chosen one. If you are the King of the Jews, save yourself. One of the criminals that's there with Him railed at Him saying, Are you not the Christ? But who is this man on the cross? Answer that question. Who is the man on the cross? You answer that question and you get a glimpse into the infinite wisdom of God. The Word of God is clear that this man hanging on the cross is the very one who hung the stars in the heavens. He was born in Bethlehem, but he was... Before Abraham. He was born to Mary. And he is the only begotten Son of God. He was a child born and a son given. And he is the mighty God. There was no room for his family in the inn. And the heavens were filled with the angels that attended his birth. He was baptized in the Jordan by John... And he walked on the Sea of Galilee. He said to the Samaritan woman, Give me a drink. And he said to the Jews, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He didn't have a place to lay his head. And yet the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. He walked on the earth and was regarded according to the flesh. And he was in the beginning with God before there was an earth to walk upon. To put it very simply, the one that we see hanging on the cross just outside of Jerusalem is the Lord God of heaven and earth. John 1.1 says that He was in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Matthew 1.23, they shall call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Philippians 2.6 says that He was in the form of 
God. In Colossians 1, He is the image of the invisible God. Verse 16, By Him all things were created. Verse 17, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. The one that's hanging on the cross is the God of the Bible. That's who we're looking at. We'll say, well, how then has He found Himself here? How, how does He die? Well, because the Bible's clear that He's man. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Philippians 2, He was born in the likeness of men. Matthew 1, Mary had given birth to a son, and Joseph called his name Jesus. Luke 2 tells us that the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, He is the man, Christ Jesus. And Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things. Now you say, I don't understand that. I don't either. I don't get it. I can't explain it. What are we saying? We're saying that this one on the cross is God-man. He's both. Galatians 4.4 says, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. Colossians 2.9, In Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He's God-man. See, I don't understand. I don't either. It's a mystery. I can't fathom it. I can't make sense of it. And we affirm this great mystery. We have to. And yet we still, I think it's okay to ask, why? Why? Why did the Son of God, or God the Son, take to Himself the nature of a man so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Why? The ultimate answer is to magnify the wisdom of God. The work of God the Son in taking on human flesh was not to improve God in any way. It didn't make God any more glorious the work of the Son was to save sinners, but that was, the goal was not merely salvation. The goal was the salvation of sinners in a way that shows the triumph of God's wisdom. God's not going to save sinners in any way that sinners might be able to mistakenly think that they have done anything in the process. He will not work in that way. He came to save sinners in a way to show the triumph of His wisdom. And it was sin which separated us from God. It was sin for which Christ endured the cross. Your sin, my sin, separated us from God. In Romans 5, we read things like this. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin 
So death spread to all men because all sinned. In Adam all sinned. Many died through the one man's trespass. The judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Sin reigned in death. That's Romans 5. Romans 3 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, think about what this is saying. You, creature have sinned against your Creator. You've sinned against Him. He made you. He sustains your life. He gives you breath. He makes the blood pump through your veins. Gives you food, clothing, shelter, far more than any of us need. And you jerk your shoulder away from Him and say, Leave me alone. I'll do what I want. That's what sin is. He gave you His laws, and you broke them. The wages of sin is death. That's the problem. Hopefully you can see the problem that we're in. Your sin has made a breach between you and your God. And you can't go to Him and bargain your way out of it. You don't have a way to get to Him. Apart from His grace, you don't want to go to Him and, and bargain your way out of it. Eternal Justice, because of sin, eternal justice stands at your door. Demanding payment. And it's not going to leave. You must pay. There must be justice for our sins. You've sinned against your Creator. Now if we go back to the first sin of Adam, and we move through to every sinner and every sin that is committed by any sinner after him, we find the creature, you the creature, I the creature, striving to exalt ourselves to God-likeness. Our Creator creates us, we rebel against Him, sin against our Creator by trying to be like Him and take His place. Adam was created by God. Adam was placed in the garden by God. Adam was given work to do by God. Adam was to serve God and glorify God in his service. Adam was to manifest God's glory on the earth before all creation through simple obedience. Just do what I say. Just obey. But the serpent comes along. Here's the promise of the serpent. The serpent says disobey, and you'll be like God. And Adam takes it, hook, line, and sinker. Sounds like a good deal. Disobey, I can be like God. And that's what Adam sought to do. He sought to exalt himself above God. He was not content with service. He was not content with obedience. He was not happy taking orders from his Creator. It wasn't enough. I don't want to just take orders from the Creator and Lord. I want to be the Lord. That was... Adam's sin. And every sinner since Adam has been born with the same attitude. Every one of us. 
Every time you sin, you are throwing off the restraints of your Creator and striving after that promise held out by the serpent. Disobey and you'll be like God. That's sin. This is the great folly of sin. This is man's wisdom. When I describe it to you, you're sitting there thinking, that doesn't make any sense at all. That's utterly ridiculous. And yet this is what we do. The finite creature clamoring after divinity. That's our problem. We want to be like God. So what does infinite wisdom contrive to fix the situation? What does God come up with? Infinite wisdom designs a Christ. The one on the cross of Calvary is the answer because He is Himself God and yet He condescends to the state and condition of the creature. Man says, I will be like God. God says, I'll fix this. I'll go and be like them. I'll be one of them. The only satisfaction for the evil of our self-exaltation is found in the willing humiliation of the Son of God. It's completely backwards. We would have never thought of this. We would have never come up with this. Adam was constrained to obey by his creaturehood. So are we. We are constrained to obey. We don't have a right to disobey. It is our very nature as under God to do what He says upon the threat of death. And that's not harsh. That's just normal. That's common sense. It's actually contrary to our nature as creatures to disobey our God. That's not normal. But we do disobey. As Paul says in Romans 3, None is righteous, no, not one. All have turned aside. No one does good, not even one. We are constrained to obey by our nature, but we don't obey. Now, what could make a repair? What can fix the problem? Except now we have one come who is by nature not constrained to obey, and yet he does willingly submit to obedience in our place. That's what Christ Jesus has done. He who by nature was not obliged to submit to any laws. He is the one lawgiver and judge. He doesn't have to obey any laws. We have to obey. We disobey. He doesn't have to obey and He obeys. He submits to obedience in taking upon Himself the form of a servant. He humbled Himself to be born of woman, born under the law as a man to redeem those who were under the law. We would have never imagined it. Adam supposed that by sinning against God, he would attain to a higher state than he had. Adam thought to exalt himself by disobedience. It's it's, it's utterly irrational, but that's what he's doing. God had given His law. God had established the rules of the garden. God had set forth the means by which Adam would have entered into glory. God made man upright. He made every provision for Adam's success. Success and eventual glory hinged upon simple obedience to God's commands 
And Adam said, I think I've got a better way. I'll disobey. And I'll exalt myself. I've got a better way. All of our sin, every time you sin, it is, it is just our own puny attempts to show how wise we are by disobeying God. It's absolute foolishness. But that's what it is. We think, oh, I found a better way. God said, God said to do this. I think i got a better way. This will work out. And it will also lead to my betterment. I think, I'll, I think I can prosper and grow and advance and better my estate by disobeying God. Does it not sound like insanity? But that's what we do. That is sin. Every time we sin, whether it's small or great, whether it's in public or in the privacy of our own hearts, every time we sin, we are saying, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Our wisdom will be seen as we disobey God. We'll show how wise we are. We throw off servant status in order to magnify our own wisdom. The only remedy for this is Jesus Christ, the God-man, showing that obedience and submission is the only way to prosper. It's the only way to advance. And in Isaiah 42, God draws all eyes to look upon an obedient servant. Behold my servant. Look at the one doing my bidding. Look at the one who serves. Look at the one who obeys. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. A servant. God the Son takes the form of a servant. Mankind was made in the image of God. And the purpose was not to glorify man, but to, to glorify God with that image. In our sin, we, we have defaced and marred the image of God. Every time we sin, we drag the image of of the holy and righteous God through the mud of our iniquity. We decry those who slaughter image bearers at the abortion clinic, and rightly so. And yet we who live, who bear that same image, trample it over and over and over again, every time we unite the image of God with our filthy wickedness, that's our sin. But how glorious is the image of God seen when that image of God assumes the nature of a man in the man Christ Jesus, the very image of God. The man hanging on the cross, remember, is the radiance of the glory of God and the express image of His person. God in human flesh, the image of God, pouring forth the only balm which can restore what we would deface time and time again. We would keep... It's defaced. It's marred, the image of God. We would keep scratching and keep tearing and keep chiseling and, with our sin. 
And yet God sends forth His Son, His very image to take on flesh. And He glorifies that image of God in human flesh again. Beginning with Adam and every sin and every sinner after him, we see an attempt to advance the will and wisdom of man over God. Every sin. Every sin is man's attempt to overthrow God, to bypass God, to outthink God. Every sin. But in His wisdom, God sent forth His Son, the God-man. And Christ's humiliation, His coming down to take our flesh upon Him, makes a better amends, a better uh, correction, a better, a, a more exalting uh, correction of God's image than we could have ever destroyed in our sin. The sin of man could not wreck or ruin the glory of God nearly as far as the God-man can make it all the more glorious. What I'm saying is, He's done more by coming down than we could ever have done by trying to exalt ourselves up. Every act of Jesus Christ, because He is God-man, is made infinitely glorious by virtue of His divine nature. Everything that He did is more wonderful because of who He is. When He ate, when He drank, when He had conversations, when He talked to people, when He walked to people, everything that He did is exalted all the more because of who He is. Only the God-man can bring forth justice. And only infinite wisdom could have contrived the God-man. Could you have ever conceived of anything like this? You would have never thought of it. That's who's on the cross. Infinite wisdom in human flesh hanging on the cross. Surely you can see the wisdom in this. God sent the remedy. God came up with the plan. To use the language of another, surely you can see the wisdom in, quote, that ineffable divine act whereby the person of the Son of God assumed our nature or took it into a personal subsistence with Himself, took on Him the seed of Abraham, took on Him the form of a servant, took our human nature to be His own, by an ineffable act of His power and grace, by giving it a subsistence in His own person, in that our nature was made His, by assuming of it to be His own. You can see, I'm, I'm, I'm giving words and phrases here, and some of you are still trying, you're trying to catch up. I don't even know what you're saying. But surely you can see the wisdom in it. I'm not saying surely you can understand this, the wisdom. Surely you can comprehend the wisdom. I'm not saying, don't you see how it just makes perfect and obvious sense and we all say, ah, oh, I should have thought of that. We can't see it. We can't comprehend it. We can't understand it. We see there is wisdom here beyond our wildest comprehensions. No human mind could have ever conceived such an act that the eternal God would take to Him the flesh of a man and yet not become less. The human nature doesn't become divine. The divine nature doesn't become human. No mixture, no confusion. And yet this is 
the only thing that will bring salvation to sinners. The only thing. It's almost as if we must say, you and I are saved from sin by we know not what. I can't fathom it. I read it. I take it by faith. I can't explain it. But we must move on to the work. Number two, the cross of Christ. We see the Christ of the cross. Now let's consider the cross of Christ. How often do we read when we're reading the old writers? They'll use the phrase, the ignominious death of the cross. That word ignominious means deserving public disgrace and shame. The ignominious death of the cross. Paul speaks of the offense of the cross. Even the people who passed by him, look at them, look at him, and they deride him and they wag their heads. Shameful. John Calvin asks, what is more contemptible than a cross? doesn't get any worse than that. And yet, as we see the Son of God hanging on the tree, we see again the unsearchable wisdom of God because it is in the cross of Christ that the power of God is displayed. It is the word of the cross which has power. It's Christ on the cross, crucified by men, that is the power of God and the wisdom of God, as Paul says here. Paul was glad to be persecuted for the cross of Christ, Galatians 6. Opponents of the gospel are called enemies of the cross. It had to be the cross. By the cross, I'm referring specifically to the, the death, the bloodshedding, the, the life-giving of Jesus Christ through this instrument of punishment, the Roman cross. The cross of Christ. And again, we're looking at this man. He's hanging on a cross. What is happening as the God-man suffers and dies like this? The answer is the glorious wisdom of God is being displayed. First, we noted last week, divine judgment has just taken place. When he says, into your hands I commit my spirit, and he breathes his last, divine judgment has taken place. First, this is a divine judgment of the sins of God's elect. The sins of God's elect have just received their just recompense, their payment. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. In Exodus 34, God will by no means clear the guilty. Ezekiel 18, the souls, the soul who sins shall die. But God has chosen to save some. Ephesians 1, He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So it was men that sinned, mankind. It's mankind that is guilty. It is men who deserve to die. 
and yet it was in the sons of men that the eternal Word has delighted from eternity. It is men that God has chosen to save. God didn't say, well, the men have sinned. I'll save the whales. Men have sinned. I'll save the giraffes. Men have sinned. I'll save the stars. Nope. Men have sinned. I'll save some men. He's chosen to save men. So then the question is how can God execute the perfect justice that is deserved by the sins of His people in the very flesh in which they have sinned, human flesh, but at the same time save some of them? How can He do both? Isaiah says, The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. So God lays on the man Christ Jesus, the eternal Son of God in human flesh, God lays on Him the sins of His people and then He crushes Him in our place. He crushes Him. Christ is made the scapegoat. What does God say? Cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. Christ is made a curse for us on the cross. Our sins judged. When He said, it is finished, I believe a portion of what He was saying was, the payment has been paid. The sins are judged. The condemnation is taken away. I've taken it all. But the cross was also God's judgment on the unbelief of the world. The cross was God's judgment on the unbelief of the world. Christ Himself said in John 3, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And the cross is the supreme sign, the supreme manifestation that men love their sin rather than God. They love darkness rather than light. True light came into the world. God, we just saw point number one, God came into the world. God came not in earth-shattering glory, not in pomp and pride, but He came in the form of a servant. God came into the world in a manner suitable to us. Basically, taking His knee to look up to us and beckon us unto salvation. And we killed Him. We killed Him. Mankind loves darkness rather than light so much that when light came into the world, we would stop at nothing until He was dead. Now, what better way is there to to show the, the real culpability of man? Here's the real nature of men. What greater evidence do we need that man is guilty and vile and hell-bent on dethroning God than to send the very Son of God into the world and just deliver Him into their hands? Let's see what they do with my Son. Surely they'll listen to Him. And apart from God's grace, if He were sent today and He walked in this room 
we might give him three and a half years before we killed him too. We think we're better than them. The only thing is restraining grace. The only thing is God's grace. When we look at the cross of Christ, we see what fallen men would do if they could really get their hands on God. They would kill Him. We would kill Him. And God showed it. Here it is before all the world. Here's what men think of their God, their Creator. But we also know the cross of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Through Christ's death, we are saved. Our sins are judged and our souls are ransomed for God at the cross. Paid for, bought. Blood was the cost. Life, that's the payment. Give the life, you get the souls. Christ gave His life, He won the souls. As Jesus Christ dies, we see God making peace by the blood of His cross. Paul says that God put forward His Son as a propitiation by His blood. That means as He suffers, as His blood pours out of His body, and as He dies, He is also at the same time taking the wrath of God into His human body and soul, enduring that wrath, taking it away from us, so that He makes a real, true atonement for sins. God... In the cross, because of who Christ is, was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, but counting their trespasses against Him, this one on the cross, counting them against His Son, and then crushing Him. Now think again about sin. All sin is disobedience. The only remedy is perfect obedience. Christ... The God-man humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We fail to obey to the point of maybe enduring a little bit of hardship, maybe a, a little less in the grocery budget or something, maybe, maybe a few strange looks from people. We fail to obey. He was obedient to the point of death. Even the death of the cross, the ignominious death, the most shameful death. All Adam had to do was obey God and it would have been unto life. Obey unto life. But he, he chose rather to disobey unto death. And so Christ comes and He is obedient to the point of death so that we might live. Adam chose to disobey so that he could even though he could have obtained eternal blessedness, Christ chose to obey to the point of becoming a curse. It was in human flesh that man sinned, and so it was in human flesh that Christ hung on the cross. Can you see the wisdom of it? Only the Creator can save sinners. But only the creature can die. The Creator can't die. Only the creature can die. The creature deserves death. But only the Creator can satisfy infinite justice. Finite creatures can't pacify infinite justice. Especially when we're the ones who deserve the justice. We've got nothing to pay with. 
The wages of sin is death. And so Jesus Christ came to save sinners by dying. Because that's what it took. We had forfeited our rights of sonship by acting like rebels and not sons. Christ, the eternal Son, comes and takes the form of a servant and obeys in our place so that through faith the Father who says to Him, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, we too are accepted in the Beloved. We threw away our inheritance. We traded it for short-lived temporal pleasure. And so Christ is appointed the heir of all things and pours out His blood so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. We traded it. He says, I'm going to get it back for you. He bleeds for the inheritance for us. He didn't need it. He already had all of eternal glory. It was for us. The devil thought to desecrate the glory of God in the garden. But God in Christ glorifies Himself in a way far more magnificent than Adam ever could have and any of us ever could have. John Owen says, The depths of divine wisdom in this glorious work are hid from the eyes of all living. We can't see it. You say, I don't understand this. Well, you're in good company. Through the cross of Christ, God perfectly and more gloriously restores all that was stolen from Him by sin and Satan, and He does it in a way that magnifies only Himself and only His own wisdom. Nobody gets a crumb of glory for this. He completely topples all human ingenuity. He blesses through cursing. He gives life by crushing He becomes our rock of refuge by becoming a rock of stumbling. God is humiliated so that man can be glorified. And in this, God is glorified and man is humbled. Does it make any sense? We couldn't come up with this. In the most accursed and barbaric way of torture and death known to man, God demonstrates the very, every perfect excellency of His nature. He's righteous and yet compassionate. He's holy and yet merciful. He's just and yet the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. And the eternal ruin of sinners in hell is traded for eternal blessedness in the presence of God. That that exchange, that transaction was sealed when Christ hung on the cross. God solved all the difficulties, met all of the, the demands of His perfect character, punished sin, destroyed the works of the devil, saved His people, and glorified His Son all in the cross. By the power of the cross, we who hated Him and loved our sin are brought to hate our sin and love Him. That which we once loved, we now hate. That which we once hated, we now love. What we once valued, now we say it's worthless. What we once said was worthless, now it's the greatest treasure we have. What we once considered foolish, we now see this is the very power of God into salvation. What we once saw as gain, we now see as loss. What we once chased after, we now count as refuse. God has done that. That 
that change of nature by the Holy Spirit was won. That's a part of the, that's the blessing of the new covenant that was won by the blood shedding of Christ on the cross. Apart from this Christ on this cross pouring out this blood, there is no salvation. There is no heaven. There is no glory apart from this. You leave this, you leave everything. So then what's the application? We're not there yet, but the application in Paul's mind is verse 31. As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I referenced Isaiah 55 in making reference to the wisdom of God later on in Isaiah 55 is where we have that famous text where God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. But just before that, we have that other famous text. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. We read these texts and we say, well, his ways are so high. His wisdom is so high. He's telling me to seek. What do I do? Well, it's prior to that at the beginning of that chapter where we read, God says, come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? God beckons us to come. He says, come and receive. Now in the Lord's Supper, that's the sermon that we hear preached. In Matthew 26, 26, Now as they were eating... Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, He broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. Obviously speaking, we would say metaphorically, the bread representing His body. In the Lord's Supper, we are reminded every week that God has said, Here's my Son. I'm going to break His body for you. Come, take, and eat. You don't need money. There's no price. The price has been paid. God beckons us to come and to eat, to live upon Christ by faith. And so as the elements are passed, I've already explained the, cro the cross, Christ dying in the place of sinners, His body being broken, enduring the wrath of God for sinners. That's what we are remembering as a glorious payment for our sins. So meditate upon that as the elements are passed and then we'll come to the Lord's table together.